bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. Happy misogynist of the week, Erica. It's our favorite time. It is. To celebrate fuckery. It's the most wonderful time of the week. (laughs) (laughs) As we slide into the Christmas season. Okay, so (laughs) anyway, it's misogynist of the week. And this week's misogynist of the week is, I'm pretty sure I've done this before, but it's the Canadian media. We did have a couple of episodes last year about, you know, the whiteness of Canadian media Mm -hmm. and and basically the post George Floyd, quote unquote, efforts of listening and learning, Mm. which I feel is like akin to (laughs) land acknowledgements and has about as much depth and commitment. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. And so last week, the Canadian Association of Journalists shared the results of their inaugural Canadian Newsroom Diversity Survey, which is Canada's first representative survey of diversity in media. The survey collected data on 3,873 journalists working in 209 newsrooms across Canada and marks the first time that comprehensive race and gender data has been collected for thousands of journalists working at all levels in the newsroom from interns to top newsroom leaders, AKA those on the masthead. Mm -hmm. So if you get the show notes, we do have a link to the full report and we do have an interactive visual visualization of the survey results, along with a couple other resources, including some tweets from Erica. And so the CAJ used the following race categories to uh, in their survey results. So they used basically an indigenous category, which included the Inuit, the Métis, and the First Nations, and whether they were had status or were non-status, an Asian category, which included Asian Caribbean, East Asian, South Asian, and Southeast Asian. Can I jump in? Because I hate this variable. Okay. I hate it. I, I don't think that, I hate these variables that are grouped geographically. You know what I mean? And using that as a proxy for race, because these different areas have different migration patterns, colonization histories, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I don't love that the that East Asian and South Asian are the same variable in terms of like as a as in terms of like um, a homogenous Asian category. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think that there are other surveys where they would have broken those out into more small um, regions. Yeah. I think that Asian variable should have been broken down. That's my point. Absolutely. And like, I get that we're talking about like continentally more or less, Mm -hmm. but it's yeah. Heavy on the, on the, um, demographics for sure yeah 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 the geographics is it's just I don't know I've always had an issue with that even when I was doing like economic research and I just I don't love it let's put it that way 
totally. And like, I mean, if you think about it, technically the Middle East is part of Asia along uh-huh. with um, some like Russian parts, right? Well, the Middle East is just the Middle East. I don't know what else to say. It has uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, etc. Yeah. Um, I also don't love the the Latin variable. What the fuck mm-hmm. is Latin? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess they're trying to say Hispanic. Yeah. OK, so but, I, I but, and I, as examples, Haitian. And I was kind of like, huh? Like, that didn't make sense to me. Well, it's just very, it's like they mean everyone who's Hispanic or is of Hispanic heritage, but isn't black because those like Afro-Latino countries or races are captured in the black category. Yeah, but isn't, would Haiti be an Afro-Latino country then? No, no. Then why is it in the Latin category? Uh, it's yeah. I am confused. But also, <laughs> it's just really funny to me that it's like says black and it includes African, Caribbean, North American, Afro Latino people. But like, if you're black, unless you're like you know quarter black or mixed race, you don't need the the other qualifiers. Yeah, no kidding. You're just black. <laughs> You know if you're black. Yeah. The fuck you do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's us uh, nerding out on breaking down these um, race categories, which I I don't understand. Also, anyway. also, can we talk about the mixed race thing? Okay, go ahead. So it says mixed race, and then it has an example. The way this example reads, it says, example, mother of black African descent and father of First Nations descent. You could have either of those things could exist in isolation with someone of who was white. Yeah. Why did they, I don't, why did I don't they have to make they, it the most obscure mixed I, <laughs> person? Why don't they just say mother of Asian descent, father white? Not non-Asian, non-Asian would have been fine okay fine okay but i don't I, like this is this is this is an odd example i do agree I, I do wonder if they specified it like that so that people who maybe aren't particularly that with it cognizant uh, <laughs> uh, i was gonna say smart um, <laughs> I would oh consider people who have like a scottish mother and a German father being mixed race. You know what I mean? How would that be mixed race? How? Listen, I can just picture someone like no, fucking no, John K no. being like, I'm mixed <laughs> oh race. Oh my God, he would say that, actually. Right? Oh my gosh. But yeah. I'm just like, it's the same race, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if he comes back with, oh, because this is what this is what people like John Kay love to do. They'll, they'll come back and they'll be like, oh, well, what if the German father is black? And you're just like, then they would be then they would be black. Like, <laughs> hello, yeah. black is black is black. It's blickety blackety black. OK, it's just yes. there's no like mistaking black 
fuck. Okay. So let's not pretend. And that's the thing. Let's not get cutesy with all of this. Okay. With these geographical Asian business. I, I really don't like that. Because it's hard to compare and contrast because an Asian variable in like in like in Britain would be South Asian. Mm-hmm. Right. Mostly. So I, I just those need to be separated anyway. Yeah. Let's move on. And then <laughs> unknown. <laughs> OK. Isn't that why they have 23 and me? <laughs> Stop it, Aaron. Stop it. <laughs> So the survey had several key findings. So as I mentioned, in total, the survey collected data on 3,873 journalists working in 209 newsrooms. 52.7% of all newsroom staff identify as women, compared to 46.7% who identify as men, and 0.7% that identify as non-binary. Of the journalists where race data is known, 74.9% identify as white compared to 18.6% who identify as a visible minority and 6.4% who identify as indigenous. Well, let's unpack that later, Erica. I can, I know you want to get in there. Mm -hmm. About nine in 10 newsrooms have no Latin, Middle Eastern, or mixed race journalists on staff. About eight in 10 newsrooms have no black or indigenous journalists on staff. 81.9% of supervisors identify as white compared to 1.4% who identify as black, 8.3% who identify as Asian, and 4.2% who identify as indigenous. That's a plantation. Really bad. 79.6% of outlets outlets reporting have no visible minorities or indigenous journalists in one of the top three leadership roles in their newsroom. Let me just say that stat again. 79.6 have no visible minorities or indigenous journalists in one of the top three leadership roles in their newsroom. Black and Middle Eastern journalists are twice as likely to work in part-time jobs as full-time jobs. 27% of all interns identify as Asian compared to 9.1% of full-time journalists. And finally, the racial identity of 25% of journalists included in this survey is unknown by their newsroom managers. Yeah, because they probably didn't want to self-identify. Woof! And I don't blame them. Honestly, I really don't blame them. Mm -mm. That that was actually a problem in the public service too. Like we, like Black people in the public service were talking about not self-identifying because they didn't want to be... They didn't want to be screened out. So that's the state we're at, where people that's are really hiding their race so that they can actually accomplish what they want to in the in the workplace. I um, I've heard th- stories from people who don't I don't identify their sexuality because they don't want yep. to be pigeonholed or use yep. that against them. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Sexuality is the same thing. Uh, religion, too. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the Canada that we are in right now, where people are afraid to self-identify who, you know. Yeah, because the things that we are that are told to us by the media, by our employers, are that our diversity is an asset and it should be celebrated. And I think 
generally as racialized people, we do believe that, but ultimately those things are used against us mm-hmm. and used as reasons to exclude or not include. Exactly. Exactly. So Erica, let's unpack a few of these statistics because I know <laughs> I found this, this study and I definitely texted it to you. And I knew that this was going to be something that you were really into. I knew it was like your bread and butter. So yeah, I eight, know you eight did. In, eight in 10 newsrooms have no black or indige- indigenous journalists on staff. Eight in 10, 80% of Canadian newsrooms. And actually that's only of the 209 that reported. Uh, so that Bromber is probably pretty accurate but like probably also a little bit higher higher. i would say closer to 83 or 85 percent i think it's an underreported stat yeah Mm -hmm. for sure and so so what does that mean i'd like to see how many journalists there like how many journalism students there are like the breakdown of that to be honest Mm -hmm. because that would be an interesting comparison and it it could be a sign of uh, an issue in recruitment and, and et cetera, you know, interviewing, et cetera, all mm-hmm. that stuff. I am, I just want to say I'm totally not surprised by the results of this survey. I think it's, I think it's nice to have it on paper, but, you know, we know the perspective of the news in this country and of the opinion writing, especially in this country. And, it's just, I, I just feel that as the generations grow up, so as you have, you know, Gen Z, for example, in the workplace, who have been exposed to different media and different ideas and have different conversations, I just wonder how long, like, Canadian media can hang on to the, the share, the market share of the viewership they have. I mean, this is this is hurting us in a society, but mm-hmm. it's also really hurting them. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably something that's actually overlooked. Right. You know, we talk a lot about how institutional media isn't adapting to the changing context and it's providing poor digital content. Right. Oh, my gosh. And but- the digital infrastructure is horrible. But we, we talk funky, about that. It's old. It's 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 like, did they consult no UX whatsoever? Like, I, I don't know it. Their their actual digital infrastructure is very poor, too. And that is a problem, I think, when you have people with multiple devices, multiple sizes of devices mm-hmm. and, you know, who catch news on the fly, meaning, mm-hmm. um. I don't know, maybe in the morning, people have different ways of interacting with that content. Mm-hmm. So if your digital infrastructure is really poor, then the ability to switch from one piece of that infrastructure to another is very difficult. I, I think of CBC's Gem app, mm. which is supposed to be their flagship app. It's terrible, okay? Mm-hmm. Because I can't cast it from my MacBook to my my smart tv it doesn't provide the option but only on mobile does it provide that option it's very strange that's so weird it is it's i'm just like really really you're gonna do me like that 
mm-hmm. going to make me use my mobile battery, you know, yeah. things like that. It are just so inconvenient to use and to wait through. I always joke that global TV globals news site will give somebody a seizure because they're, they're all still doing these like pop-up video shit from like 2010. And, uh, and, and it's, it's they're vi- like, the the background is uninspiring there's no interactivity with the content it's terrible just absolutely terrible and old okay mm-hmm. thank you i got that out yeah so like like you were saying we talk about things in terms of interoperability and generational changes in consumption ooh interoperability girl bam <laughs> But we, we don't often talk about the media in terms of them losing an audience because of the way they cover things and not being a reliable narrator or storyteller for various communities. Oh, for sure. And um, it's, <laughs> look at their coverage of the police. Oh, mm-hmm. the coverage of institutions in this country needs they need to like dial back on the whole they're meant to be here background you know what I mean or are they here at the are the at the behest of the public you know what Mm -hmm. I mean I would like to see more like civic responsibility in media instead of responsibility to corporate interests yeah yep and you know I get that there is a business decision to be made there, but saying something that is true that may not necessarily align with an advertiser's values is very different than saying something entirely inflammatory that could incite violence or hate or et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. You know, right. when you get like Tucker Carlson who like makes some sort of like anti-trans statement or says that, you know, the election was stolen and you get advertisers pulling ads from his show. That's different than you accurately re- than a newsroom accurately reporting on the way the police are treating protesters at Wet'suwet'en. Yeah, for sure. And and the coverage of Wet'suwet'en is a great example. The coverage, the, the lack of coverage of Ferry Creek is a great example these are things that should be in our national consciousness. I'm tired of hearing about the fucking coronavirus. I got to say, I, every time I put on the damn TV, it's the coronavirus, this it's vaccine that if it's not the coronavirus, it's the vaccine. And I'm just I'm I'm just like we have multiple crises in this country, mm-hmm. multiple. And you're focusing on one. Mm-hmm. And that is a great microcosm of their approach to news in general. It's very narrow-minded. It's very much in the interest of, it's very much class interest too. It would be interesting to see what the class breakdown of, of, of newsrooms is too, to be mm-hmm. honest, because I think a lot of people come from legacy, mm-hmm. right? And are upper class. And I feel like that's why It sometimes feels like the news is talk like it's like they're all talking to each other. Yeah. I feel like they're all having a conversation. Yeah. And it's exclusion. 
um, excludes other people from participating. Exactly. And that's our news coverage. And then they wonder why they're bleeding readers. I mean, yeah. I, I just I don't understand. And I it's don't not understand. to say it's not to say that COVID shouldn't be covered, but it shouldn't be your A block. It shouldn't be front page news unless there's like a momentous change in the discourse, because otherwise it's just continuing to foment that fear and exacerbate uh, pandemic fatigue. If people can think that like other things are going on, it's going to help them like move past and accept that we are going to be eventually moving into an, an endemic phase of the pandemic. Well, here's the thing. I think that what digital media did, so new media did, was really, really smart. And what, what they seem to have done is left most of the coronavirus reporting to mainstream. Have it, like What I've noticed is that even BuzzFeed and like that does its own coronavirus reporting, of course, mm-hmm. or like Fox, it was it, it was more about the secondary effects of the virus, your mental health, domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera, rather than the coronavirus itself. I just realized that actually it's subtle, but I think that new media has kind of left a lot of that to your legacy media. And Mm -hmm. I I could see that both in Canada and the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we talked a little bit about this during the election. Racialized journalists are continually sent to cover issues about race. And yes, I get that's important, but those people also have other interests. You know, they have other things that they're good at. Maybe they're an economics reporter or they have a a background in economics and they can talk about economics as they relate to actual real people instead of the fucking whoever owns Rogers now. I mean, agreed. I I think the Financial Post can do that, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever other Bloomberg can do that, can cover that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I just, I don't, it's the curation of stories that they fucking fail at, right? Mm-hmm. It's what is important and what's not, what, what to prioritize, what to, how to triage. They just seem not, they just seem to be steps behind mm-hmm. the conversation. And since, you know, it's not only about what's happening, it's the conversation around what's happening that media has to target now. Mm-hmm. Like, it just seems that digital media has been able to do that a whole lot better, for example, yeah. right? And you have those conversations, those those sort of insights happening. And when you consume those and you go back to media, when they try to do it, it's, 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 it's shallow, it's clunky, it's awkward, it's wrong, it's just... How many times have I read about the Ottawa police from mm-hmm. like CTV or like CBC or the Ottawa citizen? And it's like fawning and it, it makes all these assumptions about police in general. And these assumptions are white, middle to upper class, male dominated assumptions, suburban assumptions. I do wonder how much of that is legacy view of the media's role in helping uphold and protect democracy right because if we think about what happened mm, on good, january good, good point on january 6th with the insurrection 
and what happened during the Trump presidency was just this like threat to democracy and an attack on the media. And so, you know, there's particularly in the U.S., there's just an erosion of trust in our institutions, particularly in government. And maybe in order to protect that, there is a really big effort to, quote unquote, promote order and uh, accountability, quote unquote, accountability, whatever that means. I think they they see their role and I see my role in that industry completely differently. Mm. I think you're right. I think they they feel that they're they're. I think you're I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's the subtlety of the changing times, right? Some of us want them to hold power to account. Mm -hmm. That's what I think our role is. Mm. And it's to to shine the light on the experiences of those who don't have power. Mm -hmm. And I think you are absolutely right where they think they feel that their role is to uphold democracy. And they do that. Their interpretation of that is to uphold the institutions, whereas my interpretation of that is to uphold accountability with those structures because of the power they have. I feel that if we're not doing that, then we are just making things worse. And I just I don't think that that is I I think that we hit the nail on the head right there, but I don't think many people are thinking that way. And I don't think many people understand the difference in media, mm-hmm. like yeah. in, in management in media. They think that diversity is just an add-on, mm-hmm. right? They don't think, they don't understand it's an infusion. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they fail. Yeah. They're like, oh, if we get just one more person, diverse reporter here, or one more, or if we recruit more there, then we'll be fine. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, Dred, that's just the beginning. Mm -hmm. We haven't even hit the real shit yet. You know, it's, it's why can't your processes and procedures and policies ensure that you have representation? What are, what's wrong with them? Because you'll, if you don't fix those, you'll always run into the same problems, Mm -hmm. always. And people will always be right to criticize you. Speaking of supervisors, 81.9% identify as white compared to 1.4 who identify as black, 8.3 as Asian and 4.2 as indigenous. And so we'll couple that statistic with the fact that 79.6, so roughly 80% of outlets have no visible minorities or indigenous people at the top three leadership positions. And this is something we talk about all the time in regards to particularly about the CBC and how the media is not impartial because these people making the decisions, one in hiring, two in the content that's being covered or the issues being covered and the content that's put back out is made by white people. And that means that racialized people have no say in how things are really framed and where things are structured in the newscasts, on, in the newspaper, on the web. And we're reading what basically these white people are telling us to. Well, that's why we don't consume their media in it. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, again, is which came first, the chicken or the egg? I, I like I just think that they just don't understand the actual business prospect, like yeah. on a business level. It's like, I, you know, it, you're not you're not just losing me, losing money because of Facebook and advertising. You're losing money because you have very little to offer mm-hmm. in terms of content and in terms of things like that. The other thing, too, is news media is failing in even picking up on Canadian stories. I think Peter Nygaard should have been a bigger story. Pornhub should have been a bigger story. They they even had Trudeau under their nose and they missed that shit. Mm -hmm. And I think that is exactly because they wanted to uphold power structures. Mm -hmm. I, I think. The, the challenge in those structures will come from those who are most marginalized by those structures or come from communities who are most marginalized by that stru- those structures. So it's literally affecting the quality of the product. Sometimes I literally, if I'm looking, if I'm looking for something on the police, I'm not going to CBC, CTV, Global. I'm going to Vice. You know what I mean? Well, and like, the thing is, you're going to very, uh, see, when I want to read about the police, I'm going to go to very specific people. Yes. Right. Like yes. you're going to go to um, Manisha Krishnan. Yes, right? I like, am. That's why I go to Vice. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that interesting, too? Is, isn't that a shift, too, though? Is that journalists who write about these things, we know and we identify and mm-hmm. we follow. And so it's that whole media ecosystem that's happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Where we know that. Um, a certain person is going to write about certain things that challenges a certain narrative, mm-hmm. a mainstream narrative, and is going to write from a point of view that we can identify with. Mm-hmm. Because I think we need to understand that news is not neutral. It's not, it's not, it can never be objective. And because the presentation of news is never objective. And so, I think that that's a very interesting change in in media too, is that we are now identifying these people and saying, okay, we're following you. We know that you are going to, the the point is, is the journalist becomes identifiable Mm -hmm. more so now than in the past. If you think of Mercedes Stevenson, for example. And so that's an interesting, subtle change too, that, makes the talent and people in the newsroom even more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two things, one following the journalists and being more focused on a specific person for a specific issue reminds me of um, something that Bill Simmons talks about in terms of the player empowerment era in sports, in which Mm -hmm. case um, the players are empowered to kind of create their own contracts that happens less in Canada than it does in the U.S. in terms of that more of an NBA thing. Yeah. NBA, a little bit, little bit of football, but mostly NBA. Yeah. It sounds like an NBA thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then second, because particularly in the NBA, a little bit in the NFL, you get people who become actually also in baseball, you get people who are fans of a player 
And so Mm -hmm. they're, they're less loyal to a team or a Mm -hmm. franchise and they will Mm -hmm. follow that player. And LeBron is a great example of Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So funny, you should say that as an aside, I was reading, so I get a lot of Axios newsletters and in their media newsletter, they were talking about consumption patterns of younger sports fans Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fact that sports um, is losing fans, too, because there are just so many other things to do. Right. They are not like the younger sports fans, your Gen Zs are not like you said, they're not loyal to a team mm-hmm. like you would see more like with football in the UK and Europe or uh, even football, even NFL. It's mm-hmm. it's more team. That's very, very, very visible in the NBA. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because the NBA has, you have, you, I feel like the NBA in the nineties was kind of ahead of its time because you had players like Allen Iverson that Mm -hmm. had their own sort of cultural influence on the sport. Yeah. And I think that kind of predated this sort of personal brand era. And now we're in like this era now where you have the, you know, so well, you have social media to boy to boy somebody's personal profile. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, you have younger sports fans that you're right, follow the player and not the team. And do you find that that has empowered the players writ large? I f- do you find that that's do you think that that's empowering? I think it depends on the sport because yeah. You know, with the whole AI thing, Alan Iverson thing <laughs> in in the nineties, <laughs> I was I was like, oh, I should clarify that I'm not talking about artificial intelligence. <laughs> you know, basketball's always been very open to letting the stars do what they want and shine how they want. Whereas, well, it's it's the Jordan. Well, exactly, and it's the shoe. Well, yes, but you know. But, but like baseball, football, I guess, and hockey, they don't emphasize the individual as much. And they had much stricter rules in terms of marketing and um, control of message than the NBA does. So I think that's why the NBA is the way it is and ha- does have that kind of player empowerment thing. And I do think it's a good thing because ultimately, I mean, you know, what's everybody's. Aren't- What's everybody saw Michael Jordan could, you know, could sell the fuck out of a out of an athletic shoe. It was only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jordan is, I would say, the pivot point of that for the NBA. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I think we talk about these managers or supervisors and decision makers on the masthead in Canadian media. And, you know, they're prominently white people. And I will maintain that well-meaning white people are among the most dangerous. Yep. Because listen, if you're a racist, I know I don't need to talk to you. I know where you stand and that's fine. Uh-huh. We, can, we can just exist in our different worlds, but a well-meaning white person wants racialized people to like them so yep. desperately and uh-huh. they end up fucking up everything all the time. Because they, sister. because they are still unwilling to risk their own position of power. Boom. Boom. And we talked about this uh, with the Toronto Star article with De- and Desmond. Mm-hmm. You know, 
liberal white people and well-meaning white people are the most dangerous white people. Mm-hmm. They really are. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to add in progressives, too, because they're 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 white progressives track record on race, mm-hmm. especially when it intersects with gender or sexuality, when it intersects with anything else. Not yeah. very good. Yeah. I'm just saying. And if you're thinking, well, what, what does that mean related to this survey? Well, let's see. 81, roughly 82% of supervisors are white. Black and Middle Eastern journalists are twice as likely to work part-time jobs, which makes them precariously employed. And two, 27% of all interns are Asian with 9% being full-time journalists. Over a quarter of interns are Asian these white supervisors think that they're doing us a service by hiring us as interns and giving us opportunities at the part-time level, but they won't go to bat for us to put us on a full-time position or permanent position. They just want to have that checkbox and be like, oh, I've done my diversity hiring. End of story. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how they treat it. Exactly. But you, but you even see this in government decision-making because you know, you like the cabinet, they they sacrificed race for gender because apparently those two things are just completely mutually exclusive. You know, that not even they understand that, you know, identity is is really more of a, a spectrum, I think, than it is a one uh, a discrete variable. Mm-hmm. OK, I know I just talked in math terms, but um, my point is a lot of times it's a continuum. Or different continua. So like, that's my point. Like, I just, I don't, I don't think that even the well-meaning white people get it. I think they get defensive and I'm tired of dealing with defensive white people Mm -hmm. because literally I ain't lying. And you know, I'm right. Like, that's the thing. The reason they get defensive is because literally they know you're right. Mm-hmm. And they know that they know on some level that they're part of the problem because yeah. they are. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that I, I personally think that no government money should be given to any news organizations until they get the shit right. Mm-hmm. So one of the stats I found interesting and I need to I really need to point that out. Black and Middle Eastern journalists are twice as likely to work part-time jobs as full-time jobs. That is structural and systemic racism Mm -hmm. right there in black and white. Okay. Well, it's all systemic racism, but this is like the direct, like this is stark. Right. And last year, I, I encourage you guys to go back and listen to, I think it's, I want to say it's like 103, 104. It'll tell you in the in in the description when we talk about the diversity of, of Canadian media sometime last summer or something like that. Point being that one of my questions then and that I wanted to see data on is, and my suspicions were that BIPOC journalists, my guess were more likely to be temporary contract workers than full-time workers. And that's racist. It's mm-hmm. fucking racist. And it's this type of racism 
the racism of having an all white management team and you're only BIPOC or your BIPOC or only at the lowest levels is like I said, I will always call this is plantation politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 is also a class issue on race, race and class intersect. And when I talk about class, I'm talking about class within organizations. Who are your executives? Who are your your kind of lower senior management? Right. In other words, who's feeding the executive pool? Right. Mm. Who are your middle managers? Who are your working level? Who are your admin? And who's your janitorial staff? Mm -hmm. Janitorial staff is a little thing because I think those are um, mostly uh, contracted out. But that is class within an organization. So when I talk about class in the newsroom, I'm talking about where people, which part of the economic spectrum people come from, grew up with, right? But when I'm talking- It's where the power is. Is where the power is. So when I'm talking about class in in, in organizations, it's within that organization, as you said, it's where the power is. So who has power, who has power to make the decisions who has power to make the policies, who has the power. And we're expecting these people to clean it up. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying some accountability measures. Like I said, let's not give them any money until they get this shit straight. And let's make sure that those standards and levels and measurements and, and evaluation metrics are actually developed by BIPOC. Mm-hmm. And not like, no offense, the Canadian Association of Journalists, not other institutions, not other organizations, just not just other organizations. Sorry, because, of course, they they would be involved. And and I think, you know, the Canadian Association of Black Journalists and stuff like that. Yes. But let's also hear from people like BIPOC in the newsroom mm-hmm. or at the management level. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there needs to be like much work needs to be done, which is like, I feel like that's like, we'll do better mm-hmm. or build that better. <laughs> that's what I have to, I think that's pretty much what I have to say. I think it's interesting that, that Middle Eastern journalists are being um, discriminated against so much too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Islamophobia, probably. I know not all Middle Eastern people are Muslim. I do understand that, but I'm sure it pretty much intertwines a lot with Islamophobia. For some strange reason, um, Middle Eastern and Muslim journalists experience higher scrutiny in terms of quote unquote conflict of interest than others. Yes. And that came out with the whole Palestine mm-hmm. email thing going mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when these things happen with the newsroom and newsrooms are are becoming more and more at odds with their journalists of color, too. And this isn't just happening in Canada. It's happening in the States, too. If you think of the numerous, numerous, numerous New York Times revolts, you know, Mm -hmm. when I think of, say, um, I was on an event, a Zoom event and Karen Ataya. Uh, who is um, a columnist at the Washington Post, who was Khashoggi's editor at the Washington Post. Um, you know, she was talking about 
uh, about that and about about challenging management in terms and pushing back in against editors too, in terms of the way things are written, the headlines, all of that. On that note, Erica, that does it for this week's misogynist of the week. Again, if you are interested in these show notes, become a subscriber, badbitchypodcast.substack.com, $7, $75, $200 to become a subscriber. And you get the show notes, you get full episodes of the podcast. And since we're in Christmas season, there is an option to gift a subscription to somebody. Mm -hmm. Please, please use it for anybody who you think would enjoy the podcast, would really be needs to work out their own sort of rage at injustices, etc. The link is in the show note in the description of the podcast. So just click Help it and us grow take our you. community. How about exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. All right, Erica, I will see you next week for our full episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.